Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, and welcome back to the sixth season of The Messy Truth. I'm super excited to be back after a hiatus with an incredible group of guests whose work and creative intentions are vast and ever-evolving. My first guest is very dear to me, Rhiannon Adam. She's a friend, collaborator and peer. And in the typical pattern of our conversations, I began with the intention to talk to her about her powerful new book, Big Fence, which is a really complex body of work, her life's work really, that began when her father gave her a copy of The Mutiny on the Bounty when she was six years old and kind of unraveled into this deep interrogation of Pitcairn Island, negotiating its history, community, legacy of violence, and also primarily this tension between utopia and dystopia, which crops up a lot throughout her practice. So instead, we do talk about that, but instead we we kind of had this roving conversation about creative intentions and discomfort and the challenges of working within a broken system via touching on bookmaking and multifaceted careers, beauty, and going to space, which Rhiannon actually is doing in collaboration with SpaceX and Dear Moon. I think at the heart of our conversation are just some really frank discussions about what photography is and means to us and what it can do. I'm less interested in the kind of the visual sense of the image and more about positioning that image or being able to have conversations where the project can change people's minds about something. I'm Jen Fletcher and this is The Messy Truth, Conversations on Photography. Rhiannon Adams' work straddles art, photography and social documentary, often focused on complex narratives relating to climate change, social justice, outsider communities and the abuse of power. She's exhibited around the world, including the Photographer's Gallery, Open Eye and the National Portrait Gallery in London, and has published three books. She is currently based between London and the United States. The first thing I wanted to ask you was that your work is inseparable from your life Mm. in many ways. And I guess I wanted to talk to you about how your nomadic upbringing informed your work and your artistic life Mm. I mean I think it's in everything that I do I mean we as try as I might to get rid of my life experience and I suppose undergo a rebirth every time I start with any project I find that however hard I try there it is staring me in the face when I go back to look at the images or look at the way that I produced a project And I think, you know, having had that really nomadic life, when we were traveling to places, you know, part of my experience was always being a fish out of water. And I think that I crave that. I hunt 
explore that. And I think that I feel most at home when I don't feel at home. I feel most at home with discomfort. And I think that living in that place of discomfort helps me to understand my place in the world. Um, Because it's always like testing a boundary or it's trying to push a conversation in a new direction or meeting people who in other walks of life, you know, I would never meet. You know, it's kind of, it's trying to find those find the common ground with individuals. And I feel like that was a skill that I had to hone so much when I was a child and we were sailing from place to place and we'd arrive in a harbour and there'd be maybe two children to choose from that would be on other boats. And one of them might be 14 years old and one of them might be six and I would be 10 and I'd have to somehow make friends with both of them. And it would be always just about finding this kind of common ground or spending so much time around adults that I had nothing in common with ostensibly but then trying to find these bridges. And I do that all the time with the people that I meet and the voyages that I go on. And, you know, so much of my, I suppose, like keeping my eye in type work, which is just, you know, literally going out with the camera and seeing who I meet. So much of that has been so transformative for just mental health <laughs> in a big way. Um, and real and getting some sort of sense of perspective, I suppose, with your own life and, and the problems that you're facing and just meeting other people and realizing that, you know, there are so many problems that we share um, and that all of us on the bottom line are just trying to be happy. And I think that, you know, finding myself in these circumstances where I'm just trying to, I suppose, get into bed with strangers for want of a better description. I always say that, you know, making pictures of people is a little bit like you have to fall in love with them for a minute. And you have to fall deeply in love with them and you maybe never see them again. But it's like the most passionate one night stand. Um, And (laughs) I think there's something kind of amazing about that. And just seeing all of these little moments as, you know, even when I'm shooting portraits of people, I'm taking pictures of people, but really they're about me or they're about the relationship that I forged in that moment. And I don't take pictures of myself hardly ever. Um, It's very difficult every time I get asked for a bio photo. I just don't have any. And but I have all these pictures of other people and I have all of my memories are centered around these other people and these journeys. And that's also like how it was when I was a kid and we were traveling and I would collect things about people that reminded me of them, you know, a, a beer mat where they left a, like a, a trace of their, their beer glass, or it would be, I don't know, a napkin that they'd wipe their lipstick with and I'd write their name and the date and I'd keep it in these scrapbooks. And in a way, you know, photography has kind of been my way of doing that is anchoring myself to the world through these images of strangers. I forgot that you're a creative hoarder. Totally. I always forget it because I don't know why, but you are like you're a magpie. You're like drawn to so many different types of information, like whether it is something really physical like lipstick on a napkin or, you know, some like real obscure archive from somewhere like you've got such a unique ability to like zone into things that other people miss which I think is what makes your work so vibrant I mean I'm a a complete detail obsessive Mm -hmm. I mean I'm so obsessed by details I mean to the point where it's it's irritating I mean I buy a pair of jeans and I look at the stitches and I think oh there's one stitch out that's so annoying and I kind of can't stop thinking about it I mean, it affects all areas of my life. So in some ways it's greatly positive and in other ways it's just something that drives me to absolute distraction. You know, all mm. I can ever see is, you know, flaws in things. You know, I look at I look at like the edging of that room and I think, oh, that wasn't painted quite right or, you know, but 
on the other sense, yeah, like I, I was in um, a secondhand shop in Palm Springs the other day, for instance, and I was just looking at some pulp paperbacks and I found on one of them, it was this sci-fi paperback. And at the very top of it, it says, includes an application to go to the moon. And this was from 1952. Stop. So I find things like that. And then I looked at it and it was uh, this application form at the back of this book called The Man Who Sold the Moon. And it was talking about the Hayden Planetarium archiving these applications that were sent before we'd ever gone to space. And so, you know, that sent me on a bit of a rabbit hole. So there's all these little things that I notice all the time. And, you know, in the last couple of weeks, I've been um, buying the sort of flying saucer monthly um, magazine <laughs> and finding things, you know, finding out that people that were living in Hackney, like several roads away from where I live now, were ardent UFO discoverers and note takers and were writing these quite balmy articles for you know a journal in the 60s so yeah I mean I find inspiration from all of these these different things and I think that's what's so fascinating about humans is that we do have this magpie instinct and I think you know quite often if you have a life that was like mine where you had to move around a lot in some ways you turn into a hoarder you know Mm. and it's terrible like we had this this rule we had a six-month rule on the boat where um if I hadn't played with something or used something within six months, we'd have to get rid of it because, of course, storage space was limited. So, you know, mm. before the six months was up, suddenly I'd develop a new obsession with every Lego set that I'd ever had or I'd be thumbing through books that I was way too old for just because I didn't want to get rid of them. So there was always this this sort of threat of disposal. And I think that, you know, I've hit a point in my life where, you know, the stuff is starting to close in on me. <laughs> um but, you know, at some point, I think, wouldn't it be fantastic just to, you know, have some storage unit somewhere where I could just archive mm. it one day and I have this dream that one day I'm going to go through all my stuff and I'm going to put it in these amazing bankers boxes and it's all going to be really fastidiously organised. But of course, that's never going to happen. Instead, I just like battle through loads of stuff and I find things. And in some ways, it brings me joy because I I get to go through a drawer and suddenly go oh, I've completely forgotten about that and it sends me off on a complete tangent and you know quite a lot of my projects or the work that I make is often because of some tangent or it's you know listening to a podcast and finding a one-line reference to an academic that has done a strange study about x y and z and then I go down a deep dive into their backstory and then I find something else and something else and something else and you know yeah I just I feel so regretful that life is not longer because there are just so many things that I would love to be able to pursue. And I feel that existence is a little bit like string theory. I kind of can see all of these little little alternative lives that I could be living all at once. And it's kind of like jumping in between them and finding these little portals that are often just discovered through archive material or the way someone has, you know, waved in a cafe window and has drawn my attention to a bit of signage that I'd never looked at before. And then suddenly I've wondered what that building was before it. And I've gone down a down a rabbit hole looking at planning permission and found out who lived in the building and you know the next thing I know I'm on some kind of historical goose chase how do you manage that really because like you're as you were saying before like you're incredibly detail orientated and I know when you're in something like you're really in it mm. and when you're in that sort of flow state with something is it easy to ignore everything else or is part of your process just being open and having that sort of inspirational chaos everywhere all the time I need to have a mixture of both. I need to right. definitely have a bit of chaos. And then I need to go off, have a good wander, have a life crisis, think that I'm a complete <laughs> failure and useless, that nothing will ever be done, 
that I should just quit now. This happens regularly, by the way. I mean, and I'd be lying if I said that this didn't happen on the regular. And then just find like a chink of light within that. You know, and sometimes it just comes from a, a casual conversation that I had. Often when I'm trying to describe the thing that I've been working on or the thing that I'm thinking about to some absolute stranger, sometimes they'll ask me a question that is really, really deeply insightful. And I think, wow, I hadn't really thought that that's what the work was about, but I guess it is. And then that enables me to go back with renewed vigor. Um, but yeah, like I need to have I need to have a mixture of both. Like it's impossible for me just to to sit there and plan everything out perfectly because I think plans are made to be broken, to be perfectly honest. Um, and I like that disruption. I think I thrive off of the disruption. I thrive off of like not really knowing. And I think out of that chaos you have to be so deliberate when you forge your way out of something because there's so much to wade through that I think it helps me to be more deliberate. Whereas I think that if I was really planned and very careful about everything from in the initial stages, I think that I would also be able to plan my plan 20 different projects and not really know where to start. So in a way, almost like creating chaos, it forces me down a path. Mm hmm. You know, the potential is always there, but in the way that it happens quite organically, it feels almost that I'm handing over a little part of me to fate or a little part of me is, is you know, relinquishing control. And at the same time, you also have to make decisions in those moments, right? When there's, when there's a lot of muchness, that's when you're forced to also be like, okay, this, not this, that, not that. Yeah. So there's a sense of being forced somewhere. Yeah, abundance. Yeah. Yeah, I think like abundance is a good thing mm. because abundance allows you to, quantify in a way that if, if you're always kind of looking to, to add to something then there's so much energy is taken up on the search whereas I think sometimes when you just have like an absolute abundance you're able to to take a bit of a bird's eye view and be able to find links where links might not have otherwise existed whereas otherwise you know if you're the one always like driving like knowing exactly where you're going to find the information and being very deliberate and linear about it then that's all the information that you're ever going to find in a way Whereas I quite like existing in this sense of abundance because sometimes I pick something up and I flick through it. And if I'd flicked through it at a different week, I might not have found that interesting point. It's kind of a little bit about, you know, handing over the reins to this sort of process of the chaos and embracing that. Yeah, I love that. That's one of my most meaningful moments in the creative process, right? It happens a lot when I'm writing that like I'll just stumble I think when you're open to shit, you stumble upon the right thing at the right time, I find oftenly, and suddenly you're mm. like able to make connections. And I found it honestly like a real gift with aging because the more you know, the more abundant like the connections are in some ways. And it, I find those moments like you can't ever look for them, but when they happen, they sort of take your breath away a bit because it's, I don't know, just some little connector that you never saw coming. And you're like, okay, that's it. And I, I, yeah, I treasure those. I think they're yeah. so important. I do miss though about getting older that I miss that, that the arrogance of youth, you know, that, that, that time when you were young and you just thought every idea was the most original idea and that you were the only person to have ever thought about it. Like I miss that because that now it's been replaced by deep self-doubt all of the time. Yeah. And, and I, and I crave that, um, that self assuredness that that I used to have that I just don't have because of abundance so so in a way you know it's always like wading through a quagmire to find myself in it whereas before I just felt like well there I was and everyone should know and now mm -hmm. it doesn't feel that way it's interesting in relation to talking about abundance because people some of the listeners might not know that actually you've got also a really varied 
art practice. Mm. You've done so many different things in sort of your ecosystem. You've been a producer, a curator. You're an author of three books, two based on your folk projects, one about Polaroid. You're a publisher. You've hosted a BBC4 radio show. Like you've lectured. You've and that's all as well as your work as a visual artist. And now you're going to space. Um, and I'm guess I'm curious why that multifaceted way of working is so generative and like exciting for you I mean I think you know initially when I started off you know I just never thought that being a photographer or being an artist was ever going to be sustainable so I tried to find ways into that world that were perhaps more financially stable Um, I tried to be a sensible human and then it turns out that I'm not so sensible um which I should have known really, but yeah, I tried to fight it for a long time. But in a way, it was a really great learning process for me to to come through. And I, you know, I started off as a book designer. Um, so I, I went to Cambridge and I did English, which I think also maybe I should mention because I think, you know, a lot of people make this assumption that, you know, there's one path to being a creative and that you know that's going to art school and that that is you know the hard slog and actually you know for me I kind of hedged my bets a little bit um and I learned about the industry from other forms you know I I looked at it from different angles I was an agent for a while I worked in book publishing I um had a gallery And so I was working as a curator then because I'd worked in book publishing and we had done a show with this person who had a book deal. I then thought, well, you know, book publishing can't be that difficult. Maybe I can just figure that out. And so I'd sort of done all of these different things. And in some ways it was brilliant because it allowed me to know that I could be quite self-sustaining in pretty much being able to do any of the practical side of being an artist. And I think that... I've noticed a skills gap sometimes with with certain creatives that I've worked with in the past where they just don't know how to do a lot of these things. And it's been sort of amazingly liberating knowing that, you know what, if I needed to produce like a book dummy in three days, I can totally do that. If I am going to some portfolio review event and I need to show work in a particular way I know that's achievable I know that if someone says to me on a Friday like oh we've got space in this show and um could you pull something together by Wednesday I know that it's possible and so in a way it's enabled me to make the most of kind of smaller opportunities which early on led to so many other things because I was the person that can do and I think actually sometimes being the person that can do is completely invaluable and it's something that you can't really teach but it's the willingness and it was the willingness to kind of get my hands dirty and I think you know that has been kind of you know it's been so formative but also I think you know enabled me to meet people and work with other creatives and see the way that they worked from a different perspective and kind of pick and choose the parts that I liked or I didn't like or the things that I that I resonated with and so it really helped me to figure out my own way of working And I mean, of course, on the other hand, it's a bit of a double-edged sword because it means that it can be very solo and very lonely because, you know, I know that I can do all of these things. And so sometimes I don't ask for help when I should. And sometimes that's when the self-doubt creeps in because I haven't got that sounding board because I've always been the person who was the sounding board for other people. And I think now that that role has reversed, 
you know, and I'm in this position, quite often I find it quite lonely and quite solo. Um, but because, you know, I often think about things in a book form or I'm thinking about things even from the genesis of a project of, you know, is this a book or is this an exhibition? Because I was always taught to think about things in that way. Um, you know, is this going to be very text heavy? Is this going to be image heavy? Is this going to be very literal? Is this going to be very abstract? I kind of have these like rough ideas before I begin something. And of course, I'm totally open for it to become derailed. But I think that because I'm quite wedded to maybe the outcome being a certain thing, like a like a book or a show, um, you know, I start amassing and adjusting, I suppose, my working process as I'm going, which I think is, is great. Um, to be able to do that because I think some people just like I don't know where that's going to go and they don't they make a body of work and then they're like oh they stand back and they look at it and they're just not quite sure what it is whereas I think that I always kind of know in my heart at least where that's going and what that is and I think that that's been really important for me to kind of hold that as a goal with whatever I'm doing some things you know I, I their entire lifespan will be an Instagram post you know, and other things, I know that there is, they're part of a much larger, more subtle body of work. Um, and I kind of have these threads going concurrently. And I think having had that background of like incredibly varied, you know, I'm good with the deadline, I can write a press release, I can mm. do all of these things. And it's actually been so, so helpful. But it's also, yeah, incredibly lonely. And um, I I encourage people to have more collaborators than what I do. Um, but then so often the type of work that I do, it, it's so personal. And, you know, coming back to your first question about, you know, how tied up my work is with with my background, it really is. And so it's very hard sometimes to be critical about it in terms of how a viewer can understand it, because it's so much bound up with who I am. And I think a lot of artists, you know, work this way, but it's very difficult to to I suppose, explain what it is that I do, because quite often you know, someone say, so, you know, you, you're a photographer. I'm like, yeah, kind of. You know, are you a documentary photographer? Uh, kind of. Not really. I, I do try to make work that references a, a documentary aesthetic, but at the same time, it's really work that is so deeply personal and it's work that's, uh, you know, dealing with my own trauma quite often. Um, so, you know, I have to find these ways out of it and quite often that is so personal. And I And because it's so personal, I almost don't want to show something to anyone until it's almost at the point where it's finished because I, I I can't handle it because it's almost you know it's part of me so if someone says oh I think you should do it like this it feels that they're dragging me into a therapy room and saying mm-hmm. that I need to dismantle my childhood <laughs> so you know so so it's quite difficult it's, it's difficult you touched on so many really vital things then I kind of almost don't want to unravel them further because I think you explain them great but I think it is so important and and I really appreciate you for acknowledging that loneliness because I think even if you're someone who doesn't operate at the intersection of lots of different things like you do photography and all creative practice is so lonely if you're really delving into it in my opinion in the way that you need to it is really isolating it is really challenging I know we've talked about this at other times like the how to cultivate community around your practice is so important, but it's also really hard for the reasons that you said, but also because, you know, at the end of the day, photography is a capitalist industry and there's lots of different agendas and you're dealing with so many different things, you know, from trends to money, power, all kinds of different things. But 
it is so I think almost like not being like AA about it, but like the more we can talk about the fact that it is quite a lonely practice, the more I think we can try and build new ways of kind of supporting each other and creating different support systems through it. Because I think we do need that as well. It's really vital that we try and like bridge that gap. Mm. Completely. I mean, community is so important because those are the people who really understand what this feels like and Mm -hmm. they understand the doldrums. And they also know how to pull you out of the doldrums, even by the fact that they're also in it too. Sometimes you just need to know that you're not alone in that and that that doesn't mean you're an absolute failure. Um, But, you know, we've also spoken a lot about how it's a strange world that we live in this very isolated space and then we have to go out and sell ourselves. and And it feels incongruous, you know, with so many of our personalities is that, you know, on the surface, I'm this very kind of extroverted, gregarious person, but I am often in a room and I feel the most isolated and alone that I've ever felt, even though I'm surrounded by all of these people. It's a bit like sitting on the tube and realizing that you're just deeply anonymous. And and there's something about that where you you feel like you know all of these people, but you've never really had a conversation with any, any of them. And so in a way, that's why I try through my work to, to remind myself that it needs to stay raw to a, to a certain point, even when I am posting something on Instagram that is just a big, long bit of text, essentially, in an image just illustrate it. It's a, kind of a diary it's so that people kind of know me so that when I go to these spaces, people will say, oh, you know, I now know this about you, that you feel nervous when you're approaching that person. Or I, I know you, that you're not this this kind of bombastic character that that you can be read as from the outside. And I think it's been important to kind of cultivate the vulnerability in a way Mm. to allow people in because otherwise it is an incredibly solo process. And and I think it's really important that people know that even though things seem to be going well on the surface and that we post our highlights, that actually so many of us are plagued by this motivating self-doubt or just a daily struggle to make work when you feel that you're stuck in a rut and it is like a practice you know we call it a practice because it's something you have to practice you have to go out and you have to work at it it's not something that just comes naturally I can't just sit here in a room and suddenly everything flows I have to physically go out and put myself into circumstances where I'm putting myself in the path of being inspired or having casual encounters with humanity where I meet tension you know, I need to put myself out there. And actually, that's sometimes quite difficult because, you know, internally, I'm quite introverted, you know, and I um, but I just have cultivated because I know out of survival, I have to have this other persona, which is go out there, you know, be friendly, win people over. And even working as a kind of oh, I suppose a portrait photographer, which is so funny that people call me that now, Um I never I never used to take pictures of people at all because I was mainly terrified of them. So it's a funny, funny flip round. But, you know, this idea of of going out there and having to win people over, that is a muscle and you have to practice it. And then when I go into a room at Private View, I have to practice it. And then when I turn up at an art fair, I have to practice it. And when I go into a meeting and I show my work, I have to practice it. And it's all this artifice. And I think that you know, anyone that thinks, anyone that believes that any of us find that easy, 
I think they're wrong. You know, I, I think that all of us have just exercised this muscle and have practiced to be those people. It's the number one thing, I think, when I'm mentoring people. And by this point, I'm talking about probably close to a thousand people I've mentored, I realized recently. And it's one of the top three things that comes up, just like how to how to talk about the work, how to be in the community, like all of this tension around that isn't about making the work, but it is about the other persona you need to have to get the work out there, to progress your career, to connect with people. It's, it's really intimidating for so many different people. And I would say that spans age, all kinds of demographics. It's not, um, it's not an issue. It's not an issue related as you're saying like to someone who's just started it's something that I think so many of us battle with all the time we just have different ways of dealing with it and different levels of delusionment about it Mm. I think it's important to remember that you know everyone out there is struggling and trying to put their best foot forward and competing in this strange artificial bubble that we have made and we've spoken about this before of like you know let's be honest you know I I really believe in being honest about saying when things are hard and 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 not kind of glossing over those parts I think those are the parts that make make this life interesting Mm. because it's a path that I've chosen and, and and you know for me it was a difficult one there were so many other easier options that I could have taken in a way and um you know, and every every year I go through like a big period where I think maybe I should just go and work in a shop and have a really simple life where I just turn up at the same time and I go home at the same time and I meet mm. people in a transactional way. And I don't have to open my heart all the time and redefine myself for each new space. But, you know, in some ways, it's really helped having this two worlds with this artifice and the real me because I think sometimes when I you know for instance even when I was on Pitcairn Island there are certain things that I know that I can say and certain things that I know that I can't say and there are certain ways of presenting myself that are socially acceptable and there are certain other ways that are just not and I think about this all the time you know because I think about this about aging you know and I and I and as someone that people read you know as a kind of a small woman that has a certain look I feel that, you know, I've been treated a certain way and I wonder how that's going to change as I get older. You know, how Mm. will people relate to me differently and how will I keep on redefining myself within those spaces and how invisible will I become and will that make my photography harder? You know, will it be harder to achieve what I want to achieve when I don't look like this anymore? You know, there's all these sorts of funny things that come into that when you start thinking about, artifice and this shell that I've been given which is the the mask that I put on for the world you know where where does that end and where do I be, you know where do I begin and I think you know I'm constantly debating that and knowing that I have to galvanize myself when I go into a community where perhaps you know my sexual identity my gender identity none of these things are socially acceptable or the way that I'm read means that I can become public property or that I can be overpowered or I have to think about my the space that I take up all of the time and think, have to think about boundaries. And I'm always thinking about boundaries and redefining those boundaries and in some ways making 
you know, have, having to exist in this kind of art world where we have to go out and present ourselves in this way has been really helpful to 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 support me in those kind of difficult moments when I've been making work. So it's all kind of part and parcel of the, of the same thing in a way. It's funny because so much of it is a survival strategy while equally being a pain point. You're yeah. like constantly in a limbo between having gratitude for the the sort of tools it's given you, but then at the same time, the tools are complicated and sometimes they feel ugly and like difficult to hold and sort of make you question where the line is between you and the person you kind of feel like you have to be or you have to be just to survive, as we were saying. A lot of this is about comfort and a lot of this is about the power structures that we're existing in right mm-hmm. like that's why we feel this way in the first place it is really difficult when you really start to grapple with the nuance of actually so much of it is in limbo and and i i do truly believe that like great art making is about being in discomfort not mm-hmm. necessarily just dis- i don't see discomfort as like a painful process although it can be i see discomfort as more of like a state of openness and unknowingness and I think the more that we can get comfortable with that I think the more exciting and juicy things can get um so I have to try and like hold on to that even when the discomfort is really painful and hard well it's sort of like newness isn't it it's it's, discomfort can also be newness because Mm -hmm. it's like a new feeling that you haven't felt before or it's a and, and that and that, that is, I suppose, coming back to that idea of childhood where you, that arrogance of youth or something in some ways, it, it, it is about when you rubbed up against an experience that you had never had before and you're not sure whether you like it or you don't like it, but you're living in that experience. And I think it's important to kind of be able to maintain that bridge. But it's also, you know, building the sense of like real community. You know, there's 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 layers, aren't there? You know, there's there's the community where you can be truly vulnerable. And then there's the community where you have to keep up appearances. And sometimes the blur between those two parts is what makes it complicated. You know, you're in a room and there are people where you can be deeply vulnerable with and then you're standing next to them and having to put your best foot forward and say that everything's great and you feel like a fraud, like what you were saying about mm. being called out with the writing. And so so there's this hard part where you constantly feel in this moment of schism where you know mm. that the person standing next to you knows that you're having a really hard time but is listening to you saying that you're that everything's perfect and that it's going so well and that you're delighted. Mm. So you're constantly in this moment of discomfort. But in some ways it it, it does force you to recalibrate your brain all of the time which I think is actually a really important process and that maybe if you don't live in these in these worlds that maybe you don't have to do that and I think that it's actually a valuable tool to really think about your life in these ways and you know to really try to figure out what is you you know Mm -hmm. because it's very easy if if you don't have a clear direction within this to get lost and I think I've been really trying hard to keep that balance where I still know who I am. I still know what makes me tick. I know what I like and what I don't like and what I find fascinating. Um, and just kind of trait like stay as true as I can to that thread 
and try to listen to it. That little voice that says, you know, this is a good thing. You're onto something. Trying to kind of cultivate and, and listen to that little inner voice and banish that one which which is just saying you know what well, this is a terrible idea this is a terrible idea how are you going to present that when you're next in a room at a private view and you're having to talk about what you're working on how are you going to how are you going to explain that in two sentences you know so I'm trying to banish that all the time and just listen to mm. this little voice that's like this little quiet whisper sometimes it's saying you know this is this is where you want to be this is what you want to be doing this is who you are this may sound like a leap but I feel like it completely connects with what we were saying but one of the things that I've always loved about your intentions as an artist is that you you talk about your interest being less about making the perfect picture but more about the translation of ideas and photography being photography and like other practices being a vehicle for that and I honestly think so many people work in the opposite way to that it's all about the surface it's all about the aesthetics it's all about that sort of quick fix of photography which is very seductive but less about communication and less about connecting on a point or raising a point or trying to bring friction to a point and I think that's honestly like in my humble opinion why there is a lot of shit work because so much of it is concerned with one thing and it's not to say that work isn't beautiful and that beauty doesn't have merit and it's not to say that your work isn't beautiful but it's more just about this idea of not chasing perfection of a medium, but you just really harnessing that medium as a vehicle for something more important, which sounds obvious, but I don't think many people come to it with that intention. I think of photography as the most fantastic Trojan horse because it's so easily read and understood in a cultural space as in we see images all the time we're familiar with them we scroll past them we see them on the sides of buses we see them in newspapers and magazines there's a kind of visual literacy in the world where a photograph is something I understand what that is and I think that that kind of limitation of the medium as well which I should acknowledge that is incredibly limiting and it means that photography is often not read as a real art and it's very difficult to define yourself. So if you, you're asked, you know, what are you? And you, if you were to reply in simple terms and say a photographer, people think that maybe you're someone that goes and photographs butter melting on some crumpets. You know, mm-hmm. it's very difficult because it's it can be the spectrum from sort of Taryn Simon to, to a Lurpak advert. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, photography is so easily understandable that it's easily translatable and it's easy to position it in places that perhaps other forms of art would struggle and it means you can reach audiences in a way that you know I would otherwise be hunting and trying to find ways but through an image there's always a niche magazine or there's a niche group or you know there's a way of being able to target your work and kind of generate discussion around it because it's so easily translatable and I think that that is is why I'm less interested in the kind of the visual sense of the image and more about positioning that image or being able to have conversations where the project can change people's minds about something 
Um, and I make work for that reason, you know, without trying to sound grandiose, you know, m- most of my work in some ways involves at its core, some social questioning. And I think asking questions is much more important than finding answers. And I think that I, coming back to abundance again, you know, even when I was making Big Fence, I needed it to feel abundant and almost um, suffocating in its abundance. So that even on this very, very niche subject where you think like perhaps there isn't a lot to say, that the abundance just shows that there's been so much fascination about this subject and why has there been so much fascination about the subject? And that forces you to question why, you know, why mm. are we interested? And I think that asking those questions is is kind of what led me to the kind of form of, of that project. And it's often the way that that I think about the work is, you know, how how will the final form actually ask more questions rather than providing answers? You know, how can I create gray area with something that I'm trying to define? And I think in photography, that's that's what's sort of amazing about it in a way is that you have this very defined and kind of limited set of rules. And then it's like, how do you break them? And how do you how do you question what that image is? And how do you, you know, a photograph has so often been pre- been sort of presented as this idea of truth and of course we all know that that is completely wrong and that there's no such thing really as as objective truth but we still hold up a photograph as a piece of evidence you know it's still used as evidence and of course you know it's becoming more interesting with all these discussions around AI and everything else Mm. that's happening at the moment but this idea of the photograph as truth has a gravitas And I think my worry about, you know, for instance, with AI is more that when we lose the idea of the photograph as truth, whether or not that's that's accurate or not doesn't matter. But the idea of the photograph as truth has enabled it to sneak its way in to locations and spaces that art just can't. And I think that's what's its power. You know, it's its limitation and its power. Um, So, yeah, that was a bit of a tangent, but, you know, I love one of those. (laughs) <laughs> it's interesting to to think about some of the things you touched on with Big Fence. So you made Big Fence in 2015 mm. and you published your book last year, the end of last year. Yeah. So it's interesting also now thinking about what you were saying earlier in terms of, you know, you often have the end goal in mind while mm. you're making, which I think is really potent and, and interesting. And, you know, Again, like, obviously, I'll let you talk about this, but, you know, in many ways, this project is your life's work. There's Mm. something very circular and, I don't know, it's one of those projects that continues to keep unravelling and I think it will and as its context changes, but it's so interweaved with your lived experience while also sort of defining this particular time in the island's history while also pinpointing all of these different moments in the island's history and kind of how we got there. I guess... I'm curious why you always imagined that as a book or a physical object and why that was important. Yeah. I mean, it was always going to be a book because that journey began with a book for me. You know, I was given a copy of of Pitcairn Island's, you know, 
the story that everyone thinks of, which is the Mutiny on the Bounty. So that's the kind of, you know, the, the Pitcairn Island of the world is the Mutiny on the Bounty. And I was given a copy of that. And so that's what kind of set me on that path. So I always wanted a book that would sit next to Mutiny on the Bounty on a bookshelf. And that that one, Jane, you know, the Nordoff and Hall version, which was a fictionalized version of a true story, I wanted my book to sit next to it on a bookshelf and be you know, that you might accidentally pick up my book instead of that one. And you might read a completely different kind of revisionist history um, and show the kind of cause and effect. And I always liked that idea of those two things sitting there. And again, it's that Trojan horse aspect where I wanted it to be accidental that you'd pick it up on a bookshelf. You know, I wanted the typography on the spine to seem like something from that time, that there was a slight edge of the contemporary, but that it felt like it was fitting next to a copy of the Meeting on the Bounty. So I always had kind of envisaged it as that. And also because there have been so many column inches and so many books written about the islanders from an academic perspective, and there's been so much kind of scholarship that surrounded Pitcairn Island. But so much of it was kind of feeding into this idea of, I suppose, the islanders being being special, um, that... I mean, even my book, of course, it talks about that. You know, me making a book about an island is obviously saying that it's special enough to make a book about it. So I'm kind of aware of the deep irony of critiquing the build up and the kind of furore and excitement around that island while also adding to that. But I I really had kind of read so much of this material and really the only way that I could see that I could I suppose, make something that you could revisit and dip into and come back to time and time again and notice something different each time. I needed it to be this kind of very layered narrative. And that's quite difficult to do without, you know, I could have made a film perhaps, but that wouldn't have had the same effect. It would have been, it would have had much more of a sense of my hand in it. Whereas I wanted this to feel that it was personal, but also detached, that it could kind of redefine itself um, through time and you know I I really was also making this against the backdrop of kind of the Me Too movement had happened and you know this was all kind of happening in the the intervening years after I returned from from Pitcairn Island so it took a long time to germinate into the project that I wanted it to be and if I had published that book straight away it would have been in a completely different project and I needed to live in embrace in that chaos I needed it to be all around me and I needed to keep on buying things on eBay and keep on visiting archives and keep on kind of being the magpie that I am because that's the way I really kind of formed that narrative because I've had my experience and I was so scarred by that experience and so intimidated by the pressure of them producing work that it felt like a form of paralysis honestly it was so difficult to get myself out of that headspace because I just felt like it was too big and it was too difficult and it was too raw. And so I needed to find my way again. And so I did that through this magpie process and gathering of more information. And actually, I found my way through having abundance, not through scarcity. Um and I had always envisaged it, yeah, as as a book, but also that it could be a book that could be adapted into shows, but that each show, because it would be in a different location, that maybe it would just be one aspect of a story. And I always liked the challenge of 
bookmaking because in an exhibition you know that there is not really ever a defined beginning and an end in quite the same way unless you're arranging something chronologically you know that the way that people experience it is is always going to be kind of non-linear because you know someone's standing in front of the picture that you want to be looking at and so you move on to the next one and you read the next caption and so it's always this kind of disjointed form of experience and that's actually quite hard to recreate in book form it's actually very difficult to have that disjointed experience where you like know in the background that there's a thread but actually to kind of have that clue building or the kind of a sense of a body of work or the sense of a show is actually very difficult to have in a in a physical in a book that has a beginning a middle and an end and so part of my process with this was really trying to grapple with this idea of the tension between me wanting this chaos and this abundance and this subtlety and this kind of strange way where you forge your own adventure through the book so kind of replicating the experience of going to an exhibition I wanted that um and that kind of immersive nature of being in an exhibition is very difficult to recreate with a book because, you know, you pick it up, you put it down, you pick it up, you put it down and you kind of left that world. Whereas I wanted something that kind of felt difficult, that you had to lay onto a table, you had to open up that book in a particular way. So I couldn't have it in a bookshop where someone is just going to flick through it and hold it and kind of dismiss it because they don't like the images. I wanted it to be something you had to labour for because I didn't really care if anyone liked the images or not. And I don't like most of the images. I actually don't care if anyone likes them or doesn't like them. That was never the point of Big Fence. Um, and if anyone likes some of those images, well, that's fine. That's a nice sideline, but that was never my intention. It was a, it was an archive and a research project and, a, and my own personal experience and a diary and all of these things. And, you know, a document of our creative, our kind of collective culpability for for the abuse of power and the dangers of romanticism. And so I wanted all of that in this object. And so I was really grappling with, like, how do I physically make that? You know, it needs to be something that isn't just 10 copies. It needs to be something that I can make enough of them. Um, that it can get out into the world, but it also needs to be something that honours the stories of the victims that are actually invisible through the text, but they're they're um, present by their absence. And so I wanted to make this physical thing that was almost like an exhibition, that you had these parts that you would pull out that you could pin up and look at in a different way, that I wanted it to be almost like an exhibition in a box um, and to kind of have that that linear backbone but that experimental way of moving through it. So, so yeah, you know, I, I knew that the book form was what I wanted, but I knew it had to be a non-traditional book. It couldn't just be a book that, you know, was a bunch of pictures. I just couldn't make that. And I would never have wanted to. And if that had been the option, if I'd come back from Pitcairn Island and that's all I had, I just wouldn't have published the book. I don't see the value in that. And personally, the books that I'm drawn to and the projects that I'm drawn to, all the things that, that include subtlety or ask more questions, then they provide answers. I think it's so important how you talk about time because I know your experience was very specific, but this idea of keep time between making work and then its next sort of life stage, if you like, whether it's a book or a show, whatever. I feel like that time was so vital mm. and so many people rush, like just collapse that time. And it's a conversation I have all the time and I and I think people get a very sort of 
productivity sort of mindset around it in that I've made the work, I've got to make the book and then I move on. And mm-hmm. it's like, no, no, things can be free. Things can like just allow things to sit for a minute because actually that's where I think, not always, but I think a lot of exciting things can come out. The project can develop rapidly after the project's been made mm. in really interesting ways. And your book is such, as I say, your experience was quite specific, but your your book is a real testament to that. Because like you said, like it'd probably be a completely different book if you made it as soon as you came back. And so I think it's so important to to stress that and for people to sort of feel liberated from that cycle. Like you're not you don't have to make work like people make movies. It doesn't have mm. to be like shot, made, you know, in front of the audience next week. Like we, time is so important as part of this in in sort of, I don't know, sort of crafting what it can be. Yeah, I mean, t- time is so slippery. You know, I, I think what's funny about that project in some ways is that I was actually there for a very limited amount of time. So it, it's always difficult when someone asks me, like, when did I do the project? Mm. Yeah, I took the images in 2015. Did I do the project in 2015? No, no, I didn't. The project work came afterwards. You know, yes, I made a part of the work in 2015. So much of the rest of the work happened in 2018, 2019, 2020. Those were years that I was working very intensely on the project, making the work. So I guess it just depends on how we define work. And I think Mm. that so often we define the work of photography as clicking the shutter. And actually the work for Big Fence began when I was seven, really. You know, when I was given a copy of The Mutiny on the Bounty, that's when the work began. And that's when Mm. the kind of germination began. And this idea of of Big Fence being sort of started in 2015 and finished in 2015 and like, why haven't I brought the book out? I mean, you know, I was waiting a lifetime really to make that that work and I wasn't going to rush it on the other end of it because my whole life had been leading up until that point of like, well, I needed to to process so much that had happened and so much of, of, of I suppose, my early life had been built upon this idea of a fantasy, of this like dangling carrot that something was going to be better elsewhere, the grass was greener on the other side, this idea of utopia, but that I'd actually been questioning that idea all my life of, you know, is is this it? You know, really? Because my early life, it was really difficult. You know, it was, it was challenging. It was really hard. It was not an easy existence. You know, whenever I say I grew up on a boat, it's a really funny uh, response. Everyone always says, oh, that must have been amazing. That's the, that's the default knee-jerk response. And it kind of reminds me of, of after I first showed Big Fence, um, so my first exhibition of it, I think that when I was kind of almost testing out ideas for how this could work, could work like alongside lots of archive material, um, was in 2018. I remember I was locking up the gallery at the end of the day and I'd left my coat in there. And this guy was walking up the road and he saw Big Fence Picking Island written on the window. And he kind of stumbled towards me and I said, oh, the gallery's closed. And, uh, and he said, Pitcairn Island, heaven on earth. And by this point, I'd spent the whole day talking about, you know, Pitcairn. And I said, I just kind of turned around to him with this jaded expression. I said, no, it's a bunch of rapists on a rock. And I kind of walked off. And to his credit, he came back and he read the material and he really 
kind of took a deep dive into it and began to understand what I meant and and had connected with it in a different way. But I think that that knee-jerk reaction, you know, we're as creatives, you're so often going for that tagline for whatever that is. And then you spend so long trying to make yourself believe the tagline that you've given something or the the project statement when you wrote a 50 word abstract that you had to create for a funder and then the work changes, but you still somehow feel beholden to morphing the work to that. And I think sometimes we have to give ourselves space and time and allow something to take us in a way that we didn't anticipate. And I think that, you know, life has, has taken me in, in, in to places that I never would have anticipated. And as much as my early life was really deeply traumatic and really awful, and we never had any money and there was just, you know, sexual predators and drugs and prostitution and loneliness and no schooling and all of these other things, no running water, no refrigeration. I don't know, name it, we didn't have it. But um, all of that stuff, when you just say, I grew up on a boat, it's the tagline you know, and, and I think we're so often defined by taglines. And so most of my work is always about trying to unpack that subtlety that's beyond that tagline is, you know, how do I redefine that story? And how do I also change something that was wholly negative into something that perhaps is part of a solution, or perhaps allows me to cope with it in a way that's different. And even with Big Fence, it was like ripping off a plaster, you know, and seeing the wound underneath. And in a way, producing that work it was like that ripping off a plaster for me but it was also for the island because sometimes airing this dirty laundry and you know or airing the wound I suppose allows it to heal and I think only by talking about these things can we actually ever get to a point where change can happen and so I think creating these knee-jerk projects where you're just like so beholden to a project statement it just doesn't allow for that subtlety and it just kills the potential and I think that it's so sad because I've seen so many people whose work I absolutely adore doing this. And I think if you just sat on it for just a little bit longer and just let it ruminate, it's like leaving something to ferment. You need mm. to give it time. Kimchi is not going to taste very nice if you just put it in <laughs> one day and then you pull it out like literally the next. You're going to think, oh, no, what did I make? You need it to have that time. It is like making pickles. <laughs> like, really, making mm. work is like making pickles. You just have to let let it sit there, create the conditions you know, do all of the prep work, sterilize, do all of the prep that you need to to do to make that that thing happen. And then just like let it do its thing. And you'll be surprised. Yeah, I mean, I 100% full body agree with you, as you know. But like, it, I think if we don't start dealing and talking about all types of creativity and all types of life with more nuance, like that's going to be our continued downfall now. Like we just need to be grappling with nuance in a much more individualized way because it's it's it, this sort of, as you say, sloganizing of life and neatly packaging everything up to make it palatable and easy and easily understood, I think has just caused so many issues. But just to speak to photography specifically, like it's just not helpful. Like we went through a whole era of that being like the pathway to success, basically just neatly package everything up, really PRable. It's this one line, but that work doesn't stand up anymore. And it just, it doesn't really do anything. And I'm not excited anymore about work. That's not deeply challenging me as the viewer. 
it may sound controversial, but I don't know how much work is worth making if it's not doing that anymore. We've got too mm. many problems, too many things that are demanding our attention, too much survival to be doing to to sort of justify sitting on that surface. And I think I think a lot of people sit on that surface because they don't know how to. They've not been given the tools to go deeper because it's not how this is like expanding this way beyond. But it's not how photo education works. We we're not, as we said, we're not encouraged to think in nuance. We're not encouraged to really turn ourselves inside out like you have done in making this work. But actually, that's what that's the growth edge. That's where the space is for a better understanding of self and a more. I don't know, more a way of unraveling the things that you truly care about that are separate to all the shit that you're getting pumped and shown on social or at school or, you know, what you think equals success. Like, it's just not interesting anymore. No, and I think, you know, that that I suppose, like, I don't want to just make stuff. I'd rather not make more stuff. Like, I love collecting stuff, but I don't want to make more stuff that doesn't have meaning. And so I'm only going to make something if I feel that it needs and deserves to be made. You know, even when it comes down to silly things like the physical shipping of a book and the physical paper making of a book. You know, why are we just making all these books and not really thinking about whether that book needs to exist as a book? Some things don't need to exist as a book. Some things are better talked about in an interview some things are better just posted on social media some things don't need to be a book and it feels like everything right now is you know it's a book we that as you said you know this is the way that you form a project and then it's like you turn up at an event and everyone wants to know so what are you working on next and it feels like this kind of constant just leap from one thing to the next and actually sometimes I think even though yeah I've published Big Fence but I'm still working on it in my head mm. and I'm working on the ways that that feeds into my thought processes about what I do next and I'm not really in a rush right now to think about that big next thing whatever that is because I think it comes to me when it's the right thing and I think otherwise I can totally I can force myself to do small projects I could force myself to to read a newspaper find 10 things that are interesting write a whole load of pitches you know maybe get one of them picked up um let's be honest and go and spend and spend my life doing that for for the next period but I have to wonder like is that really what matters to me or is it better that I try to sustain my practice by doing other things and be able to stay true to the kind of artistic vision that, that's beneath that, which is about making work that I think needs to be made and tackling subject matter that is difficult and uncomfortable and puts me in a place of complete discomfort. You know, I, I also think, you know, we've spoken like a little bit about power and I think the work that I like to make puts me in a vulnerable position where I am relinquishing the power that a photographer has and kind of living in that, that horrible no man's land where, you know, my life blurs and, and my real life becomes the making of the project. And sometimes, you know, even with Big Fence, like I didn't take an, an image for, you know, a couple of months at one point. Um, but kind of like living in that, you know, this is just my existence now. My existence is the project. That's become my reality. It isn't just a project where I'm just parachuting in and just doing this thing and then leaving again. No, my whole life is this. I'm living it. 
And I think that that's important to give you the space and give yourself the space and time to be able to to do that. And I think the way that we've kind of cultivated yeah, photography education, it's like, here you go, you've got six weeks, make a project. You have to have this and this and this and this. And I'm guilty of this because, you know, I've taught on photography programs and I've had to write these things and I've had to, mark, you know, and yeah, I've had to mark it. And I, and I always feel like, wow, why am I marking work that I almost feel you know, I shouldn't be giving a grade to something. I should be asking a different question. I should be asking a question of like, does it move me? Does it make mm. me think about something differently? Not, did they submit this many images on this time frame with this amount of text? And did they give me captions with AP style guide? Like, I don't <laughs> care. In the end, I don't care. If I see one single image and it moves me and it pushes me to think of something differently, that is an effective project whether it's a hundred images or whether it's one, I don't care. Mm. And so I, I'm much more concerned with, yeah, the, the process of working, the way that we, that we think and we germinate ideas and the way that that helps us to move differently in the world than I am about making stuff and ticking projects off of a list. And I think there's always been this kind of, um, it's horrible pressure in photography, but when are you going to make a book? You know, mm. there's also this, this 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 thing where it's like, well, these are the things that you have to do in your career. And no one ever stops to ask, like, where did we get this idea from? Why? Why mm. is that the defining factor? How many solo shows have you shown in an institution? What, what collections are you a part of? You know, yes, these are milestones. But in the end, does that mean that that's the most interesting work? No. Sometimes I see the most interesting work is is some person that I've just completely stumbled upon, you know, who's been an incredible archivist of a community. Mm. They've made the most interesting work, but it won't have an audience in, in, the, in the same way because it hasn't been given the PR plan or the tagline. But I think it's important for us to open up the world of photography beyond these definitions of make the work, make the book, do the show. Because then that allows that very authentic work to come through. And quite often, you know, now we're seeing photography, like vernacular photography, that it's finding a space. But it's it's still got such an uphill struggle. And actually, like, you know, talking about the, the way of, of, of seeing the world, you know, that's that's what we're ultimately talking about when we're talking about photography. Is we're just talking about ways of seeing and understanding the world. But we're we're kind of cutting off so many ways of looking because we are so defined by this idea of success looking a certain way that I think it it is almost that we're all doomed to failure within that because we're doomed to see the world in a very linear way we're doomed to always making the same work over and over and over because hey it doesn't look like a Rhiannon Adam you know I don't mm -hmm. want to ever have anyone say that where that doesn't look like that because mm -hmm. I just want to be like well what does that even mean I'm able to change. So why can't my work change? Mm -hmm. Why does it have to be that it just looks a certain way? I am not an algorithm. You know, I, that is the beauty of humans is that we can be surprising and we have to allow space to be surprising. I mean, I can't top it. You just like articulated it perfectly, but it's the sense of like creative. It's creatively prohibitive, but then after a point it becomes it starts to reckon with your inner self because it's, it, there's a sense of soullessness about it. It's like you just realise you're 
part of the system and it's yeah and then it really does kick off a midlife crisis it's just it's so important it's just so important and it's the antithesis of what we want to hear because we're so cultivated into all kinds of success drivers but the pressure now when I speak to young students who are still in college is just phenomenal and that you know uh, I'm like it's always difficult to start unpacking these things and also not to contradict myself when I'm talking about nuance because this is so related to all different things in terms of how we value photography, what photographers are paid, like all these institutionalized ways mm. of thinking and being and valuing image makers and images um, that I don't want to do a disservice by saying like a sweeping comment. But I think in essence, like it's just so important to define your own path And yes, obviously you need to operate within a system, but it's about finding your own, finding a way that's healthy for you to operate in that system. And there's no right or wrong way. Like you said, I I also have had a similar background to you in that I've done a lot of different things within the photo ecosystem. And that was my way of surviving to get to do the thing that I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. Like I had so much shame about that, honestly, for such a long time, because I thought, well, evidently I'm not good enough to do it if I need to do all these other things. And you're battling so much imposter syndrome. But actually now when I look back, I'm uh, kind of, as you said, like I've completely, I have so much gratitude for that experience because it's enabled me to see things and work in such a different way that I realize actually is a bit of a superpower now compared Mm -hmm. to other people who may have had a different path but there's just you just can't stress that there's just not one way of being and the industry wants you to feel like that because the industry is a business quite frankly Mm -hmm. and there are so many different things trying to pull your attention because so many different people are trying to make money off you as an artist Mm -hmm. and I can't really get into publishing and and my complicated feelings Mm -hmm. about how the photograph how the photo book industry sort of supports photographers but again also nearly financially bankrupts them because mm-hmm. i think it's really important but i again don't want to do a disservice without talking about it in nuance but yes 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 to everything you just said basically yeah. thank you i mean completely like it is really complicated but i mean it's also i think that you know younger photographers now need to start asking well if there are so many photo books in the world is really the photo book the defining thing like yeah 10 Mm -hmm. years ago when people didn't have books and I could probably go into uh, you know artwords bookshop for instance I could pretty much buy every single one of those photography books because there were hardly any Mm. that would have been you know in my remit but now there are just so many it's overwhelming and even as a complete book nut you know I'm a complete book hoarder and I'm an obsessive because I love detail and I love thinking about, oh, how did they choose this paper and this particular type? And why did they make this choice? You know, I love thinking about all those things. But now I look at so many books and I just think, well, there was no point in this. I could have just looked at this on a website. You know, there was really no point in this. And, and I think that, you know, we constantly have to start asking ourselves these questions of, you know, where do we want something to be? And what is the industry that we want to create? Mm. You know, what is the future world that we want? Because we have a part in creating that. We actually do have a part because we're in it and we're living it every single day. So we have to keep on asking ourselves, like, is this productive? And are we feeling fulfilled in this? And if we're not, then how do we do things to change that? Because we actually do have some sorts of sort of agency within this. 
And, you know, it's been, of course, there are the powers that be. And of course, there are gatekeepers. <laughs> but those lines are becoming more and more blurred. And I'm excited that that's happening. Um, it's not happening fast enough in my book. And there are so many aspects, like you touched on with publishing, which, you know, a lot of it I I disagree with. You know, I, I don't... Um, I don't necessarily believe in there needing to be a book. So therefore I don't necessarily believe that you need to spend loads of money on creating one unless the only way that that project could have ever come to a sensible conclusion was as a book. Like I don't, I don't believe in making things for the sake of it and making stuff, you know, but yeah, like we have to redefine the culture that we're in and we have to forge ways where this is different. And we have to be open to having those discussions about like, how the hell do people make money? How do people make these projects? How do people finance them? You know, because I think that there's also this this myth, isn't there, of the artists always needing to struggle. And, you know, sometimes it's just okay to have another job. It doesn't make you Mm -hmm. less of an artist. It doesn't mean that your work is less valid. It just means that you have chosen to make only the work that you really want to make and that you have decided that, this is the way to make that happen. Mm. And I think that there is nothing wrong in admitting that. And I mean, you know, I often say this when I'm standing in front of a load of young people who are all trying to be where I am, or apparently, and I'm saying that I'm standing here and I'm talking to you being paid as a lecturer because sustaining practice isn't just me sitting solo making work. It's also being here talking to you defining my space it's it's all of these things it isn't just you know this idea of this kind of a poet languishing in an attic somewhere coming up with inspiration that's just not how it works and that's not the real world but we have to be more honest to be able to acknowledge that if you're a woman who has children or a person that has children a single parent that there is that this industry does not cater for you right now. It is really difficult. It does not cater for gender variance, for race variance. It does not cater for diversity of access. You know, exhibition spaces, they're not built for you having a wheelchair, most of Mm. them, you know. So there's so many kind of, there's so many things that we do in this industry, which kind of uphold the status quo. And actually, it's about us saying, you know what, we don't, we don't want it to be this way. Things should be done differently. Maybe we don't have all these paid for awards. Maybe we don't have to win awards at all. Maybe we don't need to do, maybe this is not the path. Maybe just making good work is the path and having ways of being able to find that those projects and be able to support those projects. Maybe it isn't just, you know, massive grant funding. Maybe it is more things like Patreon. Maybe it's just different ways of, of being able to sustain practice. And not having shame in that. Mm. It's so it's so true and so painful <laughs> to talk about in in a really cathartic and vital way. I just I mean I meet so many young people who always say like how did I how do I do this how do I do that and I'm like honestly my recipe book was just muck in see how far you get. Um, I didn't have a grand plan. I definitely didn't say, oh, by this age, I wanted to have a book, by I wanted to do this, I wanted to do that. Like everything that I have done has kind of found me and that's the way I like it. 
you know, even the Polaroid book. <laughs> That's so funny. You know, it's published by Thames and Hudson, who I used to work for years and years ago when I first graduated from university. And I did English and I didn't want to work in the editorial department. And I got basically a basic job in design and then ended up designing books there. And then tried to pitch that book years ago. And I was told that, you know, basically no one would be interested in that subject. How could I possibly be so silly? Of course, it was too niche. And then years later, I ended up writing the book on it because I was just relentless and I pursued it and I was obsessed. And sometimes just having these obsessions, you know, eventually it will work out. And it's just not it's not accepting no the first time or, you know, being able to redefine that project, for instance. And, you know, I almost cured myself of a love of Polaroid through having done that. I almost cured <laughs> I almost cured my obsession because I was like, OK, I've done the ultimate thing now. I just like lived mm. it again you know, really intensely. And I think, you know, sometimes it's just about developing a thick skin and taking rejection and knowing that, you know, everyone's path has been really, really difficult and that no single path has been the same and that that's totally okay to talk about. And it's okay to say that you're struggling financially because people need to know this mm. because even people whose who's work that you see everywhere quite often, if you look at their bank balance, it doesn't correlate. Oh, 100%. And I think that we need to have these conversations more often because that's the only way anything is going to change. I think honesty is really the only way that this industry is going to change. A few of the things that unite your work for me is this, as you kind of touched on earlier, like this notion of fact and fiction, this tension between utopia and dystopia, and this idea of, you know, working with people and working with remote communities specifically, which sort of connects the dots in some ways between Big Fence and the fact that you are part of the Dear Moon crew. You're <laughs> going to space. We're not 100% sure when, but you're going to space. And it's the first civilian mission to the moon as part of SpaceX, which I'm still, as you can hear in my voice, like finding hard to process that Rhiannon's going to space. And I remember when you told me about it, I just, it felt so full circle for me because we had been... I wrote the essay for your book and we had been talking about, we've been in conversation a lot, we've been talking a lot about the project and, you know, one of the big things that hooked me into, one of the things that stayed with me the most when we talked about Big Fence was this idea of your dad chasing the ultimate adventure mm -hmm. and how something which is so seemingly innocent and joyful and almost pure mm. can can have completely different effects and that line kind of stayed with me but then when you told me you were going to space I was just like but going to space is the ultimate fucking adventure like let's be honest yeah. like it's so there's something very yeah I don't know as I was saying to you before we started recording there's something very full circle about this as I like stand back and look at this as your friend like I don't know, like how, I guess like, I don't even know what I want to ask you about it, but it feels important to mention because maybe like, just how are you feeling about it? I mean, obviously very excited, but I'm still also struggling with the reality of that because I think as you just mentioned, so much of our understanding of space is even constructed through these fictions. You know, so much of our actual understanding of space is, is built by Hollywood. Um, mm -hmm. And it's often even when astronauts are training to go to space, they're using essentially sets. <laughs> um, so this whole idea of space 
is the ultimate fact and fiction blur. It's the ultimate idea of utopia. Or also, we've screwed everything up here, so let's go and try and make it mm-hmm. somewhere else, which is kind of a bit like Pitcairn Island, where you know everyone was running away from something and going to, to set up this perfect world, and then look what happened. Because, hey, anyone's utopia also means it's someone else's dystopia, or that you know someone's quest means that someone else is going to have their dreams quashed. Um, that someone's freedom is also going to mean someone else's entrapment. And there's there's all of this tension. And that's what really interests me about space. It's not really the idea of going to space itself. Yeah, I'm sure floating around in zero gravity will be great. The food, less so. I'm not looking <laughs> forward to going to the toilet. You know, there are various kind of practical things that everyone wants to know about. But in terms of on a philosophical level, I think space exploration has so much parallel between this like constant quest for utopia that, you know, my whole life was almost derailed by. Um, and it's still defined by it to such a large extent. And it's really funny. I am um, the other week I came back to London to basically cut ribbon on my old school. Um, and it was really funny. And the only reason why I was doing that is because I'm going to space. So now all of a sudden I'm like embroiled in all these other things that these doors have opened and I'm having these conversations with people that I, that were kind of from a past life in a way. But I had one interesting conversation with with a woman after that ribbon cutting. And she said, um, you should, you should meet this woman called Suzanne Hayward. And Um, I think you'd have a lot to talk about and she also grew up on a boat and she left when she was seven and her life was pretty awful but she also ended up in Cambridge and all this and then I got a text message from someone who I'd met in Arles who said "Um, you should uh, read this excerpt from a book that's coming out and it was serialized in The Guardian by this woman Suzanne Hayward who's written a book about going on a boat and how this whole, you know, derailing of life. And I was just thinking how interesting it is that we've had these similar paths that ostensibly from the outside seem like very structured and very, like we've crafted these lives for ourselves that that are quite sort of, you know, I suppose like high achieving or that, that have done the right thing. But that you come from chaos to end up on that path sometimes. And so I'm really interested in this idea of cause and effect. And by studying you know, this this kind of sense of chaos or this like horrible quest for utopia, like how does that cause us to redefine ourselves? And, you know, when I'm going to meet up with this woman and talk about, you know, our collective trauma from having had grown up in this this chaos, you know, it's also against the backdrop of me going to space and thinking about, you know, all of our creative, you know, all of our kind of creative output and how that can reflect upon kind of global trauma that we're all experiencing because we've tried to make this utopian vision you know for each one of ourselves and look how badly wrong it's gone I mean and I think that that's the, that's the part of like leaving something and having objective distance of going to space and looking back and reflecting on the earth and what we've actually created is this the best we could come up with you know I'm interested in those questions and, you know, doing this kind of deep dive into archive material and reading science fiction from before we'd even gone to space. What did people imagine? And what's so interesting about looking at so much of what people actually imagined space was going to be like versus what it is. I mean, it's a void. Essentially, it's a nothingness. That's what it is. Space, by definition, it's room. It's growth. It's it's nothingness. I mean, that is that I'm going to nothingness. So it's not really a destination. It's literally the ultimate. The journey is the destination. 
but the journey really and the destination is leaving this thing that we're on and looking back and thinking about what that thing means. I mean, that's what I'm interested in. And that's, I think, even when I look back at Big Fence, that's what that is. It's like looking at this microcosm of the world or looking back on my life as a child and seeing this like microcosm of hopes and dreams and how problematic so much of that mythology that we're that that we've kind of built up and and has derailed so many people's lives and you know that that text that I had read by this this lady um Suzanne Hayward you know what was amazing about that was how again it was a quest for utopia and how ruinous that had been for her and I think that you know I think space is almost a cautionary tale you know we've got to get it right but then even even when we're thinking about this, you know, the, the rocket that we're going to be going on is the same one that's planned to take people to Mars. And I am so interested in what psychological tests do we undergo to decide if you are a fit person to go to Mars? What kind of eugenics experiment is this? Are we going to be picking people that we want to be able to breed to take to Mars? Who are we choosing? How are we choosing those people? How are we ensuring that the pressure doesn't get to them? How how are we defining the ultimate version of humanity? And space is, you know, this, this emptiness where there is no kind of defined rule. But as this kind of blankness, how are we actually making those decisions and who is making those decisions and why are we making those particular decisions? And that is so fascinating to me. And it's not so much about you know, the destination of the project that I might make, but all of the questions that going to space raises, that is the area that I am fascinated by. And when I'm reading this kind of 1950s, 1940s sci-fi, so much of that sci-fi is concerned with setting up colonies somewhere, colonizing, colonizing a planet, going to the moon. That And all of these communities that they talk about in so many of these, these, these texts are dystopian. It's about what goes wrong. It's not about what they get right. It's always about we left, we did something, what went wrong. And it's a, in kind of amazing because you can kind of see space as this, I suppose like an allegory for the blank canvas that the earth once was and all of the horrible human traits that have come out of selfishness and jealousy and power and how we have defined the world based on those things those greed you know and we have a chance to do something differently now but will we no because Mm -hmm. the, the the powers that are creating the backdrop are still the same and I think that's why I'm excited about going you know as as someone that you know people read as as a female that I'm a queer person being able to go as a queer person to space is an incredible privilege and it's completely groundbreaking on so many levels because the countries and the powers that are still sending people to space, you know, we're looking at Russia, we're looking at China. You know, the US historically had a don't ask, don't tell policy in the military. And so most NASA astronauts came from the military. And so most people were closeted. So the fact that I'm even in the position to be going to space and this idea of like queering space just by, by my very presence, I think that is exciting to me because it helps to redefine the parameters of what is the world that we're trying to create in this new space, this new openness. What are we going to, what are we going to create? And I think that is such an incredible proposition to think about and to consider. 
like if we can look back with hindsight in 2020 everything that we did wrong what lessons are we going to learn and how are we going to do things differently this time and i think you know this is what i'm grappling with at the moment and you know i'm excited by the research and excited by the very practical side of it and the the images that i could make but then on the other hand i have to remind myself that even the presence of me going to space being who i am is not something that most people would have ever been able to envisage and it's only in this time of of you know where wealth meets technology and you know lucky enough that on this particular mission they're bringing in creatives and it's the first time you know creatives have ever been able to go to space and the whole idea behind it is that we're meant to be making work to be able to translate this this experience to others you know the blank canvas that that provides i mean it's an intimidatingly huge blank canvas and i'm sitting here with a tiny little box of paints wondering where to begin but i also know that my presence in itself is meaningful and has already been meaningful to a lot of people and so i'm trying to remember that and not to get too bogged down with you know the pressure of it but of course you know it's a lot of pressure it's a lot of excitement mm. it's it's difficult to be the only only person who's like a confirmed crew member right now who you know people just identify as being a woman and and see me as that and I think that's it's hard to be one thing for everyone and there's obviously a lot of pressure in that and I obviously want people to be able to identify with me and know that I'm actually just quite a normal person I mean yeah I've had a bit of a weird old background but I'm pretty normal and that they can do wacky things and that you know what sometimes you just need to throw in those applications because you never know what might happen <laughs> and sometimes you know <laughs> you if I, really don't yeah like you literally don't and if I had and if and if life had been different I wouldn't be going you know I mean it's like literally the the so many little tiny moments in a day that lead you to these opportunities and you know there's nothing particularly extraordinary about me although there is something extraordinary about the fact that this opportunity found me at the time that it did when i probably needed something that was big and life defining and everyone had been asking well what are you going to do after pitcairn you know what are you going to do after going to like the most remote you know now of course i'm going well i'm leaving the earth <laughs> <laughs> so so it's it's the great it's the it's the great leveler you know now i'm now when i'm at a private view and people are like so what are you working on i'm like well nothing right now because i'm going to space and that just is a great <laughs> shutdown so it's been brilliant as a get out of jail free card you know i no longer have to talk about what work i'm making i can just talk about space and everyone's eyes widen um <laughs> i love it i love it so much i mean you're going to have to come back and talk about it obviously but it's just yeah, I mean, it's just so full circle for me. I can't, I, I can't even process it, to be honest. It's just... It sort of reckons with my <laughs> sense of the weird way the world works that this has aligned. Like, it's just... I mean, even yeah. that, like we say align, you know, stars aligning and all these oh, things. Stop. Like we end up, you we end up speaking punning. in these like horrible yeah, puns. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, you know, yeah. I, I, I can't, it's, it's been awful actually, you know, it's, the moon in general, because I now am just gifted everything with the moon on it. And, you know, <laughs> Christmas comes around, it's just moon themed, birthdays, moon themed, everything is moon themed. Every time I go outside the, the house, I feel like I'm looking at something that's talking about moon. Like, oh, 
You know, every baby mm. I meet is called Moon. Every baby is called <laughs> Luna or Moon or something Moon. Oh my God! You know, it's it's kind of, and I think it, it's like what we were talking about before about sometimes when you tap into something, you see it everywhere, and you yeah. start seeing these links. And now that I'm going to space, that sounds like a ridiculous sentence. Can I just say? But <sighs> I mean, I'm just getting used to it. It's a kind of funny mouth feel. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like literally just see space everywhere all the time. Mm. And it's just kind of impossible to avoid. And I think, you know, the rest of my life, I've been so concerned with what's been happening on the earth and so concerned with what's been happening with society. And in some ways, like looking at space, it sort of tells you everything that you need to know about the way that we think about ourselves as humans is how we think about space and how we, you know, we are these colonizers. We are these arrogant colonizers. And there is something about that that is so deeply human, even though it's so other. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of just on this this trip at the moment where it just feels like every day is some new discovery of, of some other parallel. And uh, yeah, defining that into some sort of project is going to be challenging, but we'll see, I guess, when, uh, when we get to the just other side. Just think abundantly. Think abundantly. That's exactly what I'm doing. I'm just being a, I'm being a magpie. I'm being exactly. my classical hoarder. <laughs> Going into charity sh- shops and finding books about space, which I kind of love. You know, every time I find a book about space of what we thought it was going to be like or, or you know, things. I, I picked up something the other day when they were talking about that they thought that there might be diamonds on the moon. But because there were going to be so many diamonds on the moon that diamonds wouldn't be special anymore. And I was like, this is brilliant. <laughs> like all this stuff is so brilliant. <laughs> you know, I love it. Yeah, just like all these all these funny mysteries that that then as soon as we answer them, we develop a new one. Um, mm. and you know all the conspiracy theories that are hitting my inbox I'm loving those keep them coming if anyone's <laughs> listening who's a conspiracy theorist I uh, I am the person who loves a good conspiracy theory so keep sending them um, yeah and it, it's kind of brilliant because it's almost like projects are coming to me people are mailing me with things saying I tried to sue my father for this I tried to do this I oh you know you're going to be fried by the radiation I mean oh, there's just so stop. many things that I'm getting and I'm kind of just like yes I love it yes bring me more because <laughs> I mean I almost want to just not make a show that has any of my work in it and literally just prints off all of the emails yeah. of the things and all these other like the kind of the, the outsider art because yeah. that really says all you need to know about space. It does. <laughs> it's all coming to you. You're just the vessel. <laughs> yeah, I am. I'm just the perfect uh, vessel. <laughs> you're like the intermediary or something. I'm going yeah, to medium gonna link... space medium. <laughs> yeah, you're the space medium. That's better. That sounds much better. <laughs> I'm going to link in the show notes to some of the interviews that Rihanna's been doing about space because I'm sure people have endless questions about it. So I'll put those in the show notes. But are you ready to answer some quick fire questions? Sure. Okay. We've covered some of these, so it's going to be interesting. First one, how do you deal with self-doubt? <laughs> I doubt more. <laughs> well, self-doubt. I practice. I go out. I get myself out of a rut by doing something that makes me feel uncomfortable. And I keep doing it until eventually it feels comfortable again. That's the only way to tackle it is just by keeping on doing it. It's painfully true. 
how do you feel <laughs> these questions are almost too perfect for our conversation <laughs> how do you feel about the pressure to follow up when one project finishes <laughs> and then you're getting all of that energy of like what's next what's next how do you, how do you cope with that I mean it's a, it is a huge pressure of course I still feel it even though I try my best to escape it I still feel it um I just try to languish in the process honestly I just try to remind myself that you know tomorrow's another day I'm still breathing no one actually really cares what I produce next. You know, it's just a question that people ask. It's a bit like asking, you know, how are you? No one really wants to know the answer. No one really cares what you're doing next until you've done it. So I just try to... I genuinely to... care. I, I disagree. <laughs> I genuinely care because I'm always interested in like the in-between in an artist's life. Maybe, but I never ask the question because I feel like if I ask the question, it's putting a pressure on for an answer. Yeah, it's an annoying question. Yeah, it's It's an annoying annoying question. question. So I don't ask it because I just think, okay, well, you know, it's the question I hate being asked the most is what are you working on next? It's awful Mm. because I'm like, well, I don't know next. You're not factory. I know what I'm doing right now. I know what I'm doing right now, but I don't know. What do you mean by next? Do you mean the thing Mm. that I'm going to release next? Or do you think the thing that I'm thinking about next? I don't know. Mm. I just feel like it's a really difficult question. So... I don't ask it of people um, and I and I will ask more like what are you working on instead of what mm-hmm. are you doing next because mm-hmm. I think what are you working on now is maybe 20 different things or what are you yeah. interested in maybe is a better question what are you interested in so yeah I try to ask myself that question over and over and over it's like what am I interested in and sometimes I'm working on so many things at once that yeah defining it I'm less interested in is there anything you're unlearning my God, I unlearn things every day. I'm trying to unlearn right now procrastination. And that is a deep rooted. <laughs> I well, am. That's I tough. am so skilled at procrastination. So I'm trying to unlearn procrastination. And um, I'm trying to unlearn self-doubt by ignoring it um, and going out and doing more. And I'm trying to unlearn the kind of social... <laughs> I suppose, acceptability of just saying everything's fine all the time. I'm unlearning that. And I think that's going to also take a lot of unlearning of just like how to be honest in a space to be like, hey, things are difficult without just being negative, just being honest and just being able to talk about that and creating a backdrop where that's possible to have those conversations. So I'm unlearning social norms, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Okay, last quick for our question. Do you think photographs still have the power to shift thinking or consciousness I do um otherwise I wouldn't be doing it I completely believe that photographs still have that power and I think us questioning the very idea of what photography is and can be forces us to ask those questions of ourselves and forces us to look at the world in new ways just by asking that question so yes 100% to finish up, I wanted to ask you the question I ask everyone at the end of the show, which is what matters more to you, the process of making the work or the final object, photograph, show, book? Well, I like to work towards a goal, but the process is where I find myself. So I would absolutely say the process, 100%. And, you know, you hope that the outcome in some ways reflects the process, but sometimes it doesn't. And that's OK, too, because you still have the process. That's the thing that no one can ever take away from you is the process of making the work. So that's your life. That's your experience. That's who you are. So that 100% process. Thank you so much, honestly, deeply for sharing everything you have today. I really, really appreciate it. Of course, you know, you know, I love our conversations. We could just talk for about, you know, 
two weeks. Yeah, we're going to have like six more episodes, 100%. (laughs) Thanks for listening to The Messy Truth. You can find more information about today's guests in the show notes. Theme music is changed by Judd Greenstein from the album Awake and design is by Ruby White. You can follow updates on the podcast on my Instagram at Jem Fletcher or subscribe to my newsletter at jemfletcher.com. Feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts.